What does it mean to be woke? Today, I'm going to argue that a person is more woke if they're half awake. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. Let's start with the first question. What does it mean to be woke? This will depend on who you ask. Thanks to politics, one answer might be that it's everything that the Democratic Party stands for. For a lot of people, it simply means being an activist in the Democratic Party, or agreeing with Democrats on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. Another answer might point to the origins of the term, but that's harder to pinpoint. Who was the first to use it? I'm not talking about a play by Barry Beckham in 1971, or maybe something even earlier, like to an article in the New York Times, 1962. I'm talking about the general sense of it. For instance, I think we'd catch its spirit in the word enlightenment. The Enlightenment period was a time when historical institutions like Christianity were challenged by science and secularism. Kingdoms were toppled by revolutionaries for the sake of rule by the people as they embraced new concepts of ethics and morality that replaced church authority, such as Conscientism, for example. Then, as the Enlightenment period continued... Conscientism was partially superseded by existentialism and nihilism, the new wokeness of the day, much of which continues to predominate today. Wokeness evolves. It isn't today what it was back then. And since it evolves, the origination of an idea doesn't tell us much about its meaning. One aspect of what we would call wokeness is education. How many are aware How many have been awoken to the Indian Hedra, for instance? Well, in case you don't know, for centuries, Hedras were accepted in Indian royal courts as non-binary citizens. Hedras were neither male nor female. Or perhaps they were some mixture between them or otherwise undefined. I don't know what you call them, but they've been around. And it way predates the American LBGQT movement. Hedras were only oppressed as a class when Britain came to rule and introduced laws discriminating against them based on the British Empire's own mostly Christian cultural norms. India's anti-Hedra laws have been challenged by a minority of more sensitive and daring Indian citizens for many years, but only most recently largely thanks to LBGQT activism, has there been enough impetus to actually change them. Hedras have a hard time working and surviving. Suicide rates are very high among them. To be woke is to be aware of that sort of oppression and injustice, even in another country, and to understand one's obligation to do something about it. Such is education and educational institutions. They do a good job making us aware of these types of things. Wokeness is being alert. The most woke are the most aware of injustice. 
The educated, especially the liberally educated, are the elites of the Awoken in a great and ever-evolving awakening. Make sense? To be woke means being aware of the human condition and its need for deliverance from systemic oppression and for social justice. Do police discriminate against African Americans? 90% of black Americans think so, but only 35% of white Americans think so. To be woke is to recognize that systemic injustice against black Americans is a reality that needs to be overcome. For those who believe that legal, and other systemic biases against black Americans is exaggerated or untrue, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine for a moment that such systemic oppression does exist, and that it's far worse than you thought it was. What would be the right way to measure it? At what point would justice be satisfied? What are the KPIs, the key performance indices? Would equality be enough? Or would recompense be involved? And if so, how much? And in what form? Should whites, who are comparatively privileged on average, pay for crimes against humanity in order to achieve justice here? Well, some people think so. Others think it's unfair to pay for crimes they didn't personally commit. Full wokeness tends to extremes. It can never be satisfied that justice has been served. Half-wokeness is more alert, I think, than full-wokeness, because it pays attention to complex sets of diverse viewpoints and feelings, seeking to include everyone in win-win policies. Another reason half-awake is better than being woke is revolution. Revolution sucks. Let me paint a detailed example here. Let's say you have a specific vision for change and that you've decided on a KPI, for instance. Let's say that you'd be satisfied that women are no longer being systemically discriminated against in the marketplace once the average pay for women is equal to the average pay for men. That's your KPI. It seems reasonable and good, so you embrace it. Until there is equal average pay, you'll insist that women are treated unfairly in the workplace. Sounds about right. But now let's consider the future. Suppose you're unable to achieve your KPI despite decades of efforts. Suppose that you band together with a lot of other women and some men who feel the same way, and they form a political movement that promises an end to this injustice once and for all. Then further suppose that in its ranks are some radicals. They start burning down buildings to better get the message across. This is what politics does. Those few radicals in the midst reason that if their message hasn't been heard with all those prior efforts, then it never will be. So they force some media attention on it by destroying property. Then finally one day, let's say in a wave of momentum, your women's advocacy group protests at the U.S. Capitol building. And that day, someone breaks in and a lot of protesters are jailed. Someone gets hurt. And anyone associated with the group is subsequently put on a terrorist watch list, even though they were almost all just peaceful protesters. In the end, a lot of innocent bystanders are put in jail and held without trial for years, while the movement itself is marginalized as radical, setting it back for decades to come. Now, if you were half awake rather than fully woke, you might have been more careful about how you went about achieving change. 
you might have weighed out the costs and the benefits and the risks before taking any action. In fact, having done so, you might see that to be half awake this way would have entailed a deeper consideration of your action. And in the final analysis, inasmuch as wokeness is awareness and consideration, being half awake would mean being more awake and more woke. Maybe it's the inherent downside of package deals that we should be more woke too. Political movements tend to be package deals. Let's take another example. Karl Marx. Marx and Engels made some fair observations about the systemically oppressive nature of capitalism. They predicted, correctly, that a worker class would eventually rise up against the ownership class because business owners would exploit them increasingly over time as competition rose in the industrial age, alienating them from their work. For Marx and Engels, the key performance index that would signal the end of that injustice was the ownership of the means of production by the working class. The less they got back from their work, the more meaningless their work would seem, and the only way to fix that fundamental problem would be if the workers rose up and seized the means of production and abolished ownership entirely. Keep in mind that Marx wasn't necessarily advocating revolution. He was predicting it, knowing human nature. There's a difference. And then, in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution fulfilled his prophecy. It ended the Russian monarchy, and it was very bloody. In fact, the communist revolutions in the Soviet Union and its satellites, and later in China, made the 20th century by far the deadliest century in all of human history. Hundreds of millions were killed. And to what end? The Soviets aren't communists anymore. Their economy failed. The Chinese thrive today as a superpower rivaling the United States, not because of communism, even though the Chinese Communist Party remains in power to this day, but because in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, the Chinese Communist Party leader, Deng Xiaoping, believed that communism would ultimately be successful only if it was first allowed to flourish economically through free market capitalism. His successors amplified that policy with still more economic reforms and even some government stimulus packages that puts the West to shame. And that opened the door for Chinese technological dominance today under the leadership of the dictator for life, President Xi Jinping. So, does this mean that communism is dead forever? Let's think about that. Free market capitalism in China today leads a lot of people in the West to believe that China is no longer a communist country. Westerners lift up Chinese free market policies as proof that capitalism is superior to communism and to socialism. But can we be certain about that? I'd encourage you to read Sun Tzu's The Art of War. No Chinese leader has failed to read it. We shouldn't either. It's like the Bible to them. Sun Tzu teaches leaders to fool enemies into misjudging them, to completely misunderstand them, and then to capture them by surprise. No one in the West expects a sudden turnaround in China back to communism given what it sees. But have we misjudged China? There's more to this than military strategy. 
There's the fact that the Chinese value science above theory. They observe the failure of communism as it attempted to impose itself on a peasant economy in 20th century Russia. Their own economy was characterized by a peasant class as well, so the best they could offer was an anti-Western cultural revolution. They knew better. Chinese economists saw an agricultural economy as an inadequate stage of economic progress for a successful communist revolution. Did you know that? Chinese Communist Party economic theorists since Deng Xiaoping still believe that the best time to convert their economic system is when capitalism has reached its zenith in a highly industrial age. Worker dissatisfaction is a key component in the theory's mix. The disintegration of the middle class is also essential. If the working class is driven to misery while a few own vast amounts of property and business capital, only then will there be any widespread support for a successful revolution. And in fact, that's what many are predicting today as AI and automation point to high unemployment and lower wages in the near future worldwide. The Chinese Revolution, I say, may be forthcoming, also has a third component here, transition. If you're about to take over a business, would you prefer a tiny business or a giant one? If you're going to have a revolution that involves seizing the means of production, how much production are we talking about? Hopefully plenty. And that's why it behooves Chinese communist revolutionaries to let free market capitalism take its course and flourish. There'll be more to seize. So to understand how this works, it's important to understand what communism actually is. It isn't socialism. Socialism is just capitalism that's run by the state, usually very inefficiently. Private enterprise might be usurped by the government, but then the government owns and runs each enterprise, generally not understanding much about the businesses that it owns and runs. And furthermore, the economy still involves trade. It involves currency and ownership. So when the state owns the means of production and puts everyone on welfare, it winds up rationing its net gains to its population. The gains tend to be smaller than they would be in a decentralized free market because government bureaucrats are horrible at running businesses. So if we suppose that some socialist experiments have succeeded, and some have in certain ways, then we'll still have to anticipate and contend with all these inherent pitfalls. Communism is a lot different. Communism abolishes ownership entirely. If there's no such thing as ownership, there can be no such thing as trade. There are pros and cons to tradeless economies. On the plus side, everything's free. On the minus side, everything is rationed. On the plus side, equality is achieved. On the minus side, all share equally in misery. And that's why a successful transition to communism requires the type of flourishing economy that China now enjoys. In the transition to communism, there will be both a high level of general dissatisfaction with inequality, enough to foment a successful revolution with, and a great deal of production to enjoy. Production yields abundance for everyone rather than misery for everyone, hypothetically speaking anyway. I suspect this line of thinking has motivated the past 
several CCP leaders to embrace free market capitalism. And there's your explanation. Not capitalism for the sake of capitalism. As if capitalism had won and communism had been forever defeated. I think these people are more than communists in name only. They're the real deal. Give me the benefit of the doubt on this. Suppose I'm right. What happens then? What would CCP wokeness mean? And I think it could mean a number of things. There's a number of ways this could play out. It might entail global domination. Or maybe it doesn't. Let's talk about that. If it lacks enough resources to flourish on its own, then military aggression might be on its agenda. And if that's the case, then a revolution would mean World War III, and it would be a very ugly picture. Remember what I said, this is a political movement. There might be some who would prefer a global communist revolution in the party and others who don't. She could be one who doesn't. But his assassin might be one who does. She's not stupid, so he's going to protect himself against that. Let's assume Chinese leaders would prefer to avoid picking up the pieces from an exceedingly destructive war, and that they suppose their country is exceptionally large enough to have a closed economy, an autarky. Let's think positively, and suppose that's the road that it's most likely to take. That leaves China on its own, with or without possession of Taiwan and Hong Kong and so on. Woke communism supposes that love for the state is a sufficient incentive to work to produce and distribute the goods and services that its current economy presently provides in exchange for money. Woke communism is naive for thinking this. A tradeless economy is an ace in allegonomy. Love for the state is an insufficient motivator for maintaining and increasing economic output, with or without the help of automation. If the CCP wants its population to continue in abundant production of goods and services, an effective system of incentives is required. Coercion would cause discontent and uprising. Positive incentives are going to be required. But without ownership and in a population that values equality, what positive incentives could there be? You can't give anything to anyone since they can't own it. And nobody can have anything that anyone else doesn't also have. And the result is that Chinese wokeness is way too woke. It needs to dream much deeper and find a win-win when it comes to incentives. It has to abandon a certain fixed ideology that it's embraced for a very long time, and replace it with a better, more realistic vision. It needs to make an adjustment for a pivotal flaw and wake up to a more nuanced plan. What it needs to do is embrace what I call the hand system. The hand system is a tradeless economy that's managed by a massive online catalog where all goods and services found in any presently operating free market business can be found and obtained. And when the means of production are taken over by the government, workers are then asked to go back to work, enter their products and services into the catalog, and meet demand. With the website built in advance of this bloodless revolution, the transition would run smoothly so long as sufficient incentives are put in place. Fortunately, the hand system isn't just an ace in allegonomy, it's an incentivized 
asynallogonomy. An incentivized asynallogonomy involves two features that woke communism might consider anathema, and that's the problem. You can't be too woke. The two features are privilege and inequality. Be half awake with me on this for a moment and bear with me. First off, I don't just mean any old privilege. I mean earned privilege. And I mean earned inequality. What is earned privilege, you may ask? What is earned inequality? What am I talking about? Well, let's first talk about ownership. When a nation has made trade illegal, ownership is reduced to either illegal trade in a black market or to personal possession of property. In any sort of economic system, the ability to have something in your possession without the fear of someone having the right to take it away from you without your consent is one of the intrinsic benefits of ownership. This is called security. The ability to trade it is another matter. One of the failures of communism in Russia was black market trade. I'll talk about black market trade in another episode. Right now, I want to focus on the sense of security that can be gained from having the right to possess things. Ownership in an incentivized asynallogonomy stems from earned privilege. In an incentivized asynallogonomy, earned privilege involves what a person can own and possess if they choose to do so. But it's illegal to trade what a person owns. And the reason it's illegal is for the protection of another feature of privilege, earned inequality. Inequality is important. Social status and economic class, as well as privilege, are often viewed very negatively by the woke. They're considered part of the problem. But in an incentivized asynallogonomy, equality is achieved systemically through equal opportunity on a level playing field that has no history of oppression that it might need to compensate for. And furthermore, not only do all begin with the same advantages, but opportunity continues to exist equally at all times. Everyone has the same opportunity to gain and maintain privilege as everyone else, be they a male, female, otherwise identified, regardless of race, creed, age, sexual preference, and maybe even national origin. I'm picturing a very kind and forgiving Chinese leadership here. Now, incentivized inequality means that class privilege and its associated rights to ownership can be earned through work. When the worker goes back to their old job after the transition, there'll be a privilege value associated with that work. Let's say privilege levels can vary on a scale from 1 to 100. Not all types of work are of the same value to other people. Those in the business of advertising and accounting and finance would all have to look for new jobs, since there wouldn't be any more advertisements or concern for profits or any such thing as expenses or balance sheets in a tradeless economy. Those in need of learning new skills would enter school and earn privilege for learning high-demand trades while in school. Demand would be determined by the number of requests on the online catalog known as the Human Availability and Needs Database System, HANS. To purchase an item from the catalog, a person would need sufficient privilege level for that item. So if the item is listed at a privilege level of 50, but you only had 49, you couldn't obtain that item. couldn't afford it. You'd have to earn a higher privilege level first. Demand would determine privilege level in real time 
would be balanced by the limits of resources, limited resources would be protected by resource managers. Replenishable resources would be produced according to demand, and there would also be laws prohibiting the destruction of the environment to protect against pollution and climate change. But those laws would not be in conflict with shareholders of enterprises, because there wouldn't be any shareholders. Though some workers might repurpose themselves through education, finding their old jobs weren't in demand any longer. Demand alone wouldn't determine fair inequality, though. Those ordering through the catalog would also debate, and they'd vote to boost or lower privilege of various categories of work as they saw fit. The election system would also be tied in to one all-encompassing catalog. It's precisely that sort of inequality that would ensure that each person worked. And if each person worked, there would always be an abundance of goods and services available. Whereas, if we relied on love for the state to sustain us, and each person possessed the same rations, scarcity would quickly result. Unfortunately, most people are unwilling to work simply because they love their country or they believe in doing their fair share. It's very naive and unwoke, actually, to believe that people will work at all, much less do a great job, simply because they love their country. A half-woke approach is alert to that fact, and the system would include job auditing to ensure quality, providing demerits for poor-quality work that lowered privilege and merits for high-quality work that raised privilege levels. There are many facts a half-woke approach is alert to. We are alert to the fact that revolution means killing, incarceration, and a lot of tragedy. We're alert to the fact that it may mean irresponsible risks, huge setbacks, and maybe even utter defeat. We're alert to the fact that a vision of the ends that we suppose might justify the means may actually be an illusion, a deceptive mirage that leads us only to loss and destruction. Now, many of you might suppose that you're also alert to some of the inherent weaknesses in the hand system, which I just proposed. You may disagree that the Chinese will never turn back to communism as well. And you might be right. As for the weaknesses in the hand system, I've addressed a lot of those elsewhere and offered proposals for various adjustments accordingly. You'll find that information on the jamescarvin.com website. Look up the frequently asked questions under ASINEL ergonomy. That's where you'll find it. As for the Chinese, that was just an illustration. Revolution's not a pretty thing. Without a system of incentives, what we're left with is a system of coercion. We're left with gulags and work camps. It wouldn't really matter whether the Chinese took control by force. They could only exercise a woke form of communism through coercion. If they don't transition, they'll be left with an ever-widening gap between rich and poor, leaving the poor destitute. And if they do transition, then they're going to have a dystopia. They're in a lose-lose situation right now if they don't consider my more half-woke solution. But forget the Chinese. What I'm saying pertains to the West. We also are experiencing this same ever-widening gap between the rich and the poor. While the rich become richer wouldn't be a problem if it weren't for their unfair influence over our elected officials, which turn our government into an oligarchy, the poor becoming poorer involves direct 
daily suffering and stress. You don't have to have class envy to suffer from poverty. Personally, I see a very bleak economic future ahead, both in the West and in the Orient. We have unsustainable debt at this point. We have a lot of problems, many of them systemic, that our current system is failing to solve. Sooner or later, we're going to realize that the only solution will be to reset the entire economy globally. We can choose between revolution or a tweaking of our dream and our vision to something not so woke, which is actually quite a bit more alert. In closing, let me say some very astonishing things. Personally, I believe that the hand system is capable of ending poverty altogether, once and for all, if it's adopted on a global scale. If it was, it would provide universal health care that's free. Education would be free as well. There wouldn't be any such thing as debts to pay off. No one would ever lose their house. There would be no homelessness. The hand system would prioritize sustainability and end the climate change crisis without harming a single industry. It would also dramatically reduce crime. I'd love to spend time explaining why each one of these incredible statements is true. But despite all those benefits, I see the hand system as too visionary to be relevant. It can't be a solution for our age. We're just not ready for it. Pamelonomies, on the other hand, are actually very well suited to our current condition and mindset, and that's essential. So as we finish out Season 1 of this blogcast, we're going to direct our focus on Pamelonomies. Then in Season 2, you can expect to hear a whole lot more about them. So in our next episode, we're going to return to the subject of pamelonomies, right? And in case you missed it, a pamelonomy is a high-impact concept stage enterprise, either for-profit and owned by service providers and users, or non-profit and assisted by Pamology Society volunteers. The Pamology Society teaches pamology and funds pamelonomies while helping with staff. That's our mission. Please help by supporting us on Patreon. Volunteer support is also welcome as well. Just send a message and we'll put you to work. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pamology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pamology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pamology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.